Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. We'll read again this week, verses 1 through 4. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the, Jebus- of the lands and their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, please open our hearts to Your Word today. Your Word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Your Word which divides even soul and spirit. Your Word that can strike our hearts. That can be used as a scalpel also to heal them. Teach us today from Your Word. Let us hear what Your Spirit says to the churches. And I pray that You would guide the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart as I stand and proclaim Your Word. Lord, hide the messenger behind the message. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, we pray. Amen. We come again to this text this morning, and I'd like to pick pick up where we left off last week. Some of you may recall that I began last week to lead us through an examination of the example of Ezra in regard to spiritual leadership. And you may remember that while Ezra may not be well considered by those who would base their evaluation of him on modern worldly norms, the Bible's evaluation of him is not at all negative. And I would like to use our time this morning to look at some of the instruction God gives us through this crucial moment in the lives of Israel and the life of Ezra the scribe. Now I will say at the outset that very often... Most often, I would try to include all parties in a message of this sort. Those who know Christ, those who don't know Christ. But this morning, I am not simply preaching the leadership secrets of Ezra the scribe. The things that make Ezra an exemplary spiritual leader can't be translated to this world. They have to be done in the spirit of holiness. They have to be done in the spirit of God. And so this morning, I speak primarily to the church, to those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, who follow Him 
and believe. I began to introduce this text last week, but we got no further than the introduction because it's absolutely critical for you to know this is not simply God's instruction for someone else. That it's not merely teaching for the preacher or for the teacher. In last week's introduction, I provided the scriptural evidence that allows me to state plainly today, this message, Christian, is for you. Each one of you, whether you are an official teacher now or not, each one of you leads others. And each one of you, if you will continue to grow in the holiness as God intends, you will inevitably teach others, whether in an official capacity or by the example and the conversations which often have a greater influence than anything that is done in an official capacity. Most likely, it'll be both. And it is of ultimate importance as we lead, to lead those who would follow in the right way. That means in the right direction and by the right methods. It is incumbent upon us to teach the truth. I want you to recall that the testimony that the Bible gives about Ezra back in chapter 7 and verse 10 says this, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We covered this when I preached on this passage, but I want to remind us again, he studied the law first, he did it second, and he taught it. It was a culmination of the study and the devotion he had to God. And finally, before we begin in earnest to look at these examples this morning, I I feel I must remind us all why this is a critical moment. We began our look at this passage some weeks ago with that very question, but we must keep that answer before our eyes if we're to understand these last two chapters of Ezra. This is the moment where the returning exiles are standing on the precipice, where they are standing on the ledge of the cliff in danger of becoming precisely the idolaters that their ancestors were. And they were in danger of moving into that idolatry for exactly the same reasons. Because they were being pulled away by their hearts, marrying and giving in marriage to the idolaters around them, making themselves friends, perhaps even allies with the idolatries that were all around them in the land. So when the officials in our passage today come to Ezra to confess this great sin, It brings Ezra to this crisis where he must draw solely on the wisdom of God. And that leads us to our first point. We noticed last week that the officials came to Ezra. Ezra didn't go and make accusations to the officials. The officials came to Ezra. 
Now you may recall that Ezra had a commission from the king of Persia to go and preach, but it had some teeth to it. If we look back in Ezra chapter 7, verse 26, we see the words of the king of Persia who says, Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. I don't know a whole lot of preachers that could put up with that much power. Some commentators have rightly observed that the period of time between Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem and this confession of the officials was about four and a half months. And so they asked why Ezra waited so long to confront the issue. He had the king's document in his hand. Why didn't he stand up in the, on the street corner and say, you are wrong and you are wrong. We see Nehemiah do that. If we look over in Nehemiah chapter 13, we see him. Here in this passage, we see Ezra pulling out his hair and his beard. Nehemiah says in chapter 13, when I saw that they were married into these idolaters, I pulled their hair out. I pulled their beards out. Because Ezra, or Ezra is a scribe, Nehemiah was the governor. But I would tell you that to ask why Ezra didn't use this document with teeth is entirely the wrong question. Because we tread on dangerous ground when we begin to speculate on the thoughts of someone in Scripture without biblical evidence to confirm our theories. The right observations to make are those that are explicit right here in this passage. The first thing we can say for certain, Ezra had begun teaching the Word of God. The very verse, verse 1 here, says that after these things had been done. And what are these things? These things include everything the the commission from the king had instructed him to do. He had brought the offerings to the temple and put them into the priest's hands. They had offered the sacrifices and the prayers that the king had commissioned them to offer. He had delivered the letters to the officials in the area. And then finally, Ezra had begun to teach the word of the Lord. The second thing we know for certain is that the officials, as I said before, came to Ezra. Because the preaching of the word of God is powerful. They approached Ezra in repentance. That means they had every intention of turning from their sin. They just didn't know how to do it. Ezra didn't use that legal sword that the king had put into his hand. Ezra preached the Word of God. And when we talk about spiritual leadership, please hear this. It begins and it ends with Scripture alone. A leader who is following God's way will take all of his or her guidance from the Scripture. We will judge its severity by the Scripture 
And we will find its remedy from the Scripture. Ezra received a tremendous amount of worldly power from the king of Persia. But the power that turned the Jewish leaders' hearts was not his threats, but his preaching of the Word of God. How many ministries, how many teachers have fallen to the error of merely supporting their opinions with carefully selected verses of Scripture? You don't come here on Sundays to hear my opinion, even if you agree with it. And if you would attend for that, shame on you. The reason a believer gives ear to a sermon is to hear the Word of God and nothing else. We want to hear the Scripture expounded through the Holy Spirit. We want to hear God speaking to us from His Word. And the best preaching that can be done is that that illumines the Word of God itself. That allows the Word of God to shine through and proclaims the truth of God's instruction. A follower of Jesus Christ declares his desperate need of this, crying like the Apostle Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's Peter's declaration when Jesus said, Are you going to abandon me also? In John chapter 6. The Word of God alone is sufficient to bring someone to repentance as the Holy Spirit empowers it. Ezra's threat of force is no more use to this man of God in turning back to the heart turning back the hearts of the people to God than a state trooper parked in the median of a busy interstate. You've all seen it happen. You're driving along at speed when all of a sudden brake lights begin to tap in front of you. And everybody slows down to some amount below the speed limit just in time to pass a trooper with a radar gun. But then what happens half a mile past that trooper? It's the Daytona 500 starting flag again. Everyone is back up to speed. Because when we're confronted with just the sword, it can only punish us if it catches us. It can never foster obedience. It can never make people want to obey. The sword can never bring repentance. At best, it obtains a grudging self-interest. I don't want to get a ticket. I don't want to be thrown in jail. But it only gains that self-interest until we're out of its range. It can't change us. But we see that the teaching of God's Word has affected a complete 
change in these officials. They didn't have to come to Ezra. But they did. And they're not coming to tattle on others. They're confessing their own sin. You see it when they say, In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. These very men are confessing their own sins. It wasn't the threat of Ezra's power that smote their hearts. It was the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The preacher must preach. The teacher must teach. But only the Holy Spirit can change a heart. And these officials are described in verse 4. I love this description In our text this way, it says they are the ones who, quote, trembled at the words of the God of Israel. When Ezra preached the word of God, they trembled. But not only must we preach and must we teach, the second mark of the spiritual leader is that he prays. We've seen it from the beginning of Ezra. From the beginning of where Ezra comes on the scene, Ezra prays. We talked about it when he declared a fast before they left. He gave the people a specific prayer to pray a specific need that they all would have. This critical moment is no exception. Ezra prays. In fact, the rest of the chapter of chapter 9 and the beginning of of chapter 10 details the prayer of Ezra for the people. How often do we pray for each other. I'm not talking about some general prayer like Lord please bless such and such and such and so and the other fo- other fella. Those kind of prayers were while perhaps better than nothing show the at least investment of ourselves in the outcome. Perhaps when we hear of a great need, we may stop what we're doing and say a prayer. But do we agonize in prayer for each other? I stand before you and I confess with an open heart. I've not prayed for you the way I should. As I got to this point in my preparation, I was blown away by the depth and the fervent passion of Ezra's prayer before God. As a whole, we don't, I think, pray for each other like our life depended on it. Like our life depended on it. Because if we should love our neighbor as ourself, their pain would be our pain. Their danger, their peril would be our danger and our peril. Their joy would be our joy if we loved 
our neighbor as ourself. But in modern times, we just don't invest in each other like that. We tell ourselves that God knows our brother's need, but then we think we really don't need to bother with learning it because we can just say, God, you know what they need. Please take care of it. How can we say we love each other if we cannot even lift a handful of urgent needs before the Father for each other? How can we say we love each other if we don't know each other well enough to pray specifically for those things our brother or sister needs? And have we truly loved each other if we raise those needs only a single time? Often you'll see prayers needed on Facebook or in a text message. Or you'll get a call that says, please pray for me, pray with me. How many of us forget far too soon to continue. Luke chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. Jesus begins telling a parable. He says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. You know the end of that story. He says that even though the judge didn't respect God or man, he would stand up and he would give her justice because she kept coming to him. She was going to wear him out. You know what Jesus calls it in that very passage when we keep coming to the Lord until the matter is settled. He uses one word to describe it and he calls it faith. He says in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Will we have faith enough that our Father will answer, that we will keep storming the throne of grace and bringing the needs of our brothers and our sisters before Him until He answers? Faith isn't one and done praying. Faith is storming the gates of heaven with requests that are led by the Word of God. Faith is persisting in our requests until God sends His answer. And as responsible, mature Christians, what greater service can we supply to the people around us than to regularly take their burdens as our own and besiege the throne of God. Besiege that throne of grace and mercy with those very requests. Our great high priest never rests. He is constantly lifting our prayers before the God of heaven. But we don't pray adequately because we don't invest in our brother adequately. We'll spend the next several weeks 
looking at Ezra's prayer in the coming verses. But I would encourage you to read this chapter for yourself often as we go through it. The third and final mark that we'll talk about today of a spiritual leader is that he is ready to serve. Every action, every word prayed by Ezra demonstrates his identification with the people he thought. It demonstrates an unlimited commitment to helping them correct their sin. Last week I introduced a passage I told you we would see again this week. That was 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. Please allow me to read it because I think it's important that we hear it. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see in this passage the marks of a servant who, is, who God is using as a leader. Note, I am not using that modern label that sells so many books, the servant leader. Because it's too easy for us in the flesh to emphasize that leader part and only pull out the servant part on occasion. Rather than ever considering yourself a servant leader, consider yourself instead a servant with an area of responsibility. If you were to lead people in Jesus' name, you are a servant of all. I'd like to rather quickly go through the instructions that God gives us through Simon Peter to those servants with the responsibility to teach, to lead others. The first thing he says is shepherd the flock. Now I'll say there's a connotation here we just don't get in our modern times. Similar to the way that we've made a torture implement, the cross, into jewelry, we have forgotten the status of the shepherd. We talk of the shepherd and we see someone who stands and leads. But if you have a social hierarchy and you have real shepherds, they would be below almost every other profession, often even below slaves. David wasn't in the field with the sheep because he was the best. He was in the field with the sheep. Because he was the youngest. Because he was the runt. 
because his brothers were doing other things. We have somehow elevated this profession of shepherd to some sort of noble thing that and we do it at the cost of the true teaching of the command. A shepherd's entire life was built around sheep. When the angels announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds in the field, that entire story is meant to repulse and then to awe us. Because God announced the birth of the Messiah to arguably the lowest members of society. The shepherds in the field with their sheep. There is no glory in shepherding. There is only the work of the lowest circumstances. The shepherd has no claim to glory. He simply has the responsibility of the sheep. And so when Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, he is not elevating the status of the one who would preach or the one who would teach or the one who would lead. He is saying, you must be the servant. Because that is what a shepherd is. He then says, exercise oversight, not under compulsion. In other words, don't try to avoid getting into the messy business of service. Go and praise God that He has given you this responsibility, that He has entrusted you with this flock, no matter how large the flock may be. For some, it may be a single child. For others, it may be a larger congregation. He warns us not to do it for shameful gain, but willingly, because service is not about what you get out of it. You may get something, but that's not the point. What we seek when we lead, when we are truly servants, is to hear from our Master, well done. You've done what you ought to have done. We serve God because He has called us to serve. And that is enough. Because you love Him most of all. What better can we find on earth but Jesus? What can add to the preciousness of His commendation? Peter says, not domineering. He learned this one straight from the mouth of Jesus. We even have the incident in Matthew chapter 20. All the disciples are arguing because Jesus has just said, I'm going to be taken away. And where did the disciples' minds go first? Well, who's going to be in charge after that? I think it should be me. Oh no, He called me first. 
Oh no, but I'm more spiritual. I hang out with him more. And they argued. And they argued. And then even James and John's mama got involved. I tell you what, if they're the sons of thunder, she's the lightning. But Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, we don't have the power, the authority, the spirituality to stand and lord it over people. If you would be great in his kingdom, you will lead in service. He says, be an example to the flock. That means we must be fighting sin at least as hard as you tell others to. We've seen so many tragic stories in these later days of people who would proclaim loudly to abstain from sin and yet did not control themselves. Nothing will stop a preacher's mouth against sin so much as when he tolerates that sin in himself or in his family. The next instruction, look forward to the coming of the chief shepherd. We look forward to seeing and and giving our account before Jesus Christ, the shepherd of shepherds who laid down his life for the sheep. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. For those who are not yet in this position of responsibility, live your life so that those in responsibility may lead easily. Not dragging you along. Allow your hearts to be humbled. And then finally, he gives that very advice to everyone. Clothe yourself in humility. It culminates his teaching here. Consider the other person higher than you. Look to the needs of others before you look to yourself. Church, there is no command laid for the leaders that is not to some extent common to all. God through His Holy Spirit is building each of His saints into disciple makers. Evangelism is part of it. But there's so much more that we as the church of Jesus Christ, whether officially or unofficially, have the responsibility to do. We teach, we train, we pray, we lead by example, we proclaim the Word of God. 
And if all that sounds familiar, it should. Because in the Scripture, we see that often referred to as spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts meant for the building up of the body of Christ. If we miss those, we become dysfunctional. And so each of us leads because each of us serves in our areas, in our place, in our ministries. Let's pray. Our Father, You have called us to such such a ministry. There is no way we can do this in our flesh. There's no way we can do this in our minds or our hearts. But God, You have given us Your Holy Spirit to bring us to repentance, to strengthen us for the trials, and to lead us in Your Word to guide others. God, let us never flee from that responsibility. Let us never try to dodge that call. But God, teach us to go to Your Word, to come before Your throne, and to esteem others more highly than ourselves. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.